Scripture reading this morning comes from Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 24, uh, the last couple of paragraphs, beginning with verse 36 through verse 53. While they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations." beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising God. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Everyone loves a good ghost story, right? The anticipation, sitting on the edge of our chair, watching the screen, Knowing that, no, don't go out. He's out there. You don't want to do that. We have the benefit, whether we're reading a ghost story or we're watching it, we have the benefit of being the outside observer, of looking into the story and feeling the anticipation building. We know what's going to happen. The canons and standards of ghost stories are such that we... We know what's coming next, and it still terrifies us. The post-resurrection narrative accounts of the Gospels, as they talk about what Jesus says and does, are spooky in their own way. The appearing and disappearing act of Jesus in Luke's Gospel and in John's Gospel have, uh, have, have Jesus simply showing up and terrifying his followers. Now in Matthew's Gospel, there's only the one story. They meet him in Galilee. They get the Great Commission. Evangelicals love that because it's so simple and straightforward. Boom. Mark's Gospel scolds everybody for not believing 
You know, just verse after verse in Mark 16 of, you guys didn't see what was coming. But Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel have these stories where Jesus just shows up post-resurrection, where he just appears. And it had to be terrifying. What, what were they to expect? They had seen him die. Well, they hadn't really seen him die because they all ran off. But they knew he had died. The kind of death that you usually don't come back from. You have to think about that one a little bit, didn't you? Yeah. And so here is this encounter, this story that ends Luke's Gospel of Jesus just showing up and speaking with His disciples. The post-resurrection narratives are included in the Gospels not to prove Jesus' resurrection. They are not the answer of evidence that demands a verdict. You see, the proof of the resurrection exists when we live as if the resurrection happened. The proof of the resurrection is in you and I acting like Christ is alive. The proof of the resurrection is always in the Jesus-like character that we embrace. People want to see if the resurrection is true. The church is called to live as if it is true. The stories exist to commission disciples, to transform disciples. That one final graduation exercise from disciple, from mathetes, from apprentice, to apostolos, to apostle, to one who proclaims and announces the good news that indeed Christ is alive and indeed it matters and indeed it transforms lives to take fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and whoever else was in the room and turn them into people who would give their lives willingly for the cause of Christ in the world. That's what these stories are for. That's why they exist in our New Testament. To guide us into new life. And to bind us to each other in Christian community. And so there is in Luke's Gospel these two stories. The Emmaus Road story and the other story. That time when Jesus showed up for a snack. The Emmaus story is the background. Cleopas and his friend walking the seven miles out from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which several biblical scholars think is kind of a hotbed of revolutionary activity against Rome. So these, Cleopas and his friend, are probably people who are, um, there's, there's been a, the Roman equivalent of a bolo issued for them. Be on the lookout for these two guys. And all of a sudden, here comes a third guy who just shows up along with them. So they, they were a little edgy. And they fall into conversation because hospitality is really important in this culture and you don't just ignore a guy who's walking with you. 
even if he might be a Roman spy about to arrest you and haul you off to prison, or worse, you engage, you have the conversation, their hearts burned within them as they heard the conversation, as they, as they carried on this conversation with the risen Jesus. His words made sense to them. They couldn't recognize him. Remember, Jesus had been beaten up pretty badly before he went to the cross. He was probably unrecognizable. Probably kept his hands kind of under the folds of his garments. Face was a mess. And they landed in Emmaus. And it's late. Stay with us. You're, you can't be a Roman spy. Come and, come and eat with us. And he broke bread. And he was gone. And Cleopas and his friend kind of looked at each other and went, Dude, what just happened? And they turned around and went back to Jerusalem. Now, Luke's Gospel seems to indicate that the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus is a day's journey. It's about seven miles. Let's call it at Jeff Wright's speed. It was about a three and a half hour walk. Not including stopping for rests. So maybe four. Was not... They didn't go at Emilio Lopez speed, okay? Uh, it, was, it, was not, it, it, was not a, it was not one of those forced Bataan death marches that Emilio will take you on that he calls a hike. <laughs> it wasn't one of those. It was... It was, it, 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 was it was seven miles or more. And these guys, without a moment's hesitation, turn around and hightail it back to Jerusalem. And they burst in on the disciples and they say, you won't believe what happened. And they're just, there's a hubbub. There's, there's this, everybody's talking at once and Jesus shows up. And oh my, that was a bit unsettling. They were startled and frightened when he showed up as one ought to be when a ghost appears. And Jesus mildly challenges their doubt. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your mind? Look at me. See my hands and my feet. Touch me. I'm incarnate. I'm not incorporeal. I exist in this dimension with you. And then Mark, uh, Luke says what I think is one of the most interesting things he says in the Gospels. In verse 41, he says, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. They were they were so stunned that this was Jesus in their midst. They, they wanted to believe. They, hoping beyond hope. But back in the back of their mind is this, yeah, no, nah, it couldn't be. Can't be. Not possible. This just doesn't compute. And they are caught in this 
space between the, the joyful possibility that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead and everything they know about crucifixion. They're caught between their certainties and their dreams. And Luke acknowledges that in the words of Jesus. And so Jesus simply says, do you have anything to eat? Because sitting at table with Jesus usually takes care of all the questions. When we sit at table with Christ, we can usually figure stuff out. I, I, I wish I had a logical explanation for that. I wish I could say, here's the reason why it happens. It's just been my experience. When we sit at table with each other, when we share a meal, we can talk to each other. When we linger over a cup of coffee with each other, when we sit with Jesus as He eats a piece of fish and we hear Him speak to us, the doubts begin to melt away. That's why for 2,000 years the most powerful image of our faith isn't always a book. It's a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. The most powerful image of our faith is a meal. Not an intellectually rigorous lecture. Darn it. But a meal where we welcome Jesus to the table with us. And our lives are infused with His presence. He says, do you have anything to eat? And it is in that moment as He eats in front of them that their minds become open to the stories of the Old Testament, to the Torah, and to the wisdom writings and to the Psalms and they begin to go, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. In the moment of dining with Jesus in that post-resurrection moment, the disciples begin to see the story. And it is when they begin to see the story that Jesus says, now, here's your job. Starting in Jerusalem and going out into the world, bring the forgiveness of God to everyone who seeks it. Twenty minutes before, they were all sitting there arguing with each other about whether Jesus, the stories about whether Jesus had risen or not were true. 20 minutes before, they were, they were a cacophony of noisemakers, uncertain about everything that had happened that day, uncertain about their future. Jesus shows up, has a snack with them, and their life trajectory is planned. And so they go with Jesus out as far as Bethany. It's about a 10-mile walk. 
and he blesses them, and he ascends to heaven. And the disciples must have said in that moment, I guess he's really serious about us doing this thing. Because they go back to Jerusalem with great joy, the text says. Not with sadness, Jesus has disappeared. But with great joy. We now know the direction of life. And they went to the temple. They went to the very seat of Jesus' enemies. They went to the very place, the very religious institution that saw to it that Jesus had been crucified in the first place. And they went there and worshipped. They reclaimed who they were and waited for God to act. The second half of Luke's story, book of Acts, will pick up what happens next. But we're left in the Gospel story with these disciples having seen a ghost and having shared a meal with Him and having clarity about what they were called to become and to be. The resurrection turns disciples into apostles. We talk a lot in the church these days about discipleship, and well we should, but perhaps we ought to talk more about apostleship. That in the places to which you and I have been called, into the workspaces and the neighborhoods and, and the, the interactions we have, we have called to be apostles of Jesus. We have called to be carriers of His story into the world. In the places where we work, in the neighbors that we interact with, in the markets that we frequent, we live as if Jesus is risen and that that makes us vocal with our lives and our voices. And that we have this contagion that has gripped our hearts. A contagion of joy that leads us forward. But in the space between Cleopas and his friends coming back from Emmaus and the walk out to Bethany, that space is a liminal space. That's a long hallway for those disciples to go from A to B. And you and I live in that same kind of liminal space. We have, many of us in this room, said, said yes to Jesus in a way, in a fashion. We've said, yeah, this story is compelling. We want to we follow Him. We want to we try to do what He says. We want to we live as if He matters. And at the other end of that hallway is this explosion of joy, this bursting forth with the announcement out of our lives that Christ the Lord is risen. That's a long hallway that we find ourselves in. The resurrection turns disciples into apostles, but not instantaneously and only through a process, and it's not an easy one. Because it requires that we enter into a liminal space, into a, into a, a, a doorway that 
transforms us. It moves us from one place to another. And that liminality is unsettling and disorienting. The, the resurrection story, well, Paul describes it best. He says, you know, the cross, that was, you know, the cross was Paul's shorthand for all of this. The death and resurrection of Jesus. He says the cross is, is, is foolishness and a stumbling block. And it doesn't make any sense. It's a ghost story that has that is a happy ending. What ghost story is a happy ending? I mean, at least for most of the characters in a ghost story. Maybe for one or two of them it's a happy ending. But for most of the characters in a ghost story, it's not a happy ending. So here's this, here's this different kind of story that unsettles us and disorients us. Joy is possible? Are you kidding me? The apostolic life is full of that kind of disorientation, that, that startled sense of peace, that doubting certainty, that laughing disbelief. The open mind, which I think until the last decade or so we used to think was a normal part of life, and now we're not so sure in our culture. The waiting witnesses, patient joy. There, there is in this story this disorientation, unsettling, that invites us to a reorientation. You see, if, if you think that becoming a Christian is about adding a little religious widget onto your life, a little decoration, a, a badge, that you know, a merit badge that says, now I am religious, you have indulged in a great adventure in missing the point of Christianity. The point of our faith is that it transforms us. It changes us. It moves us from apprentice to apostle. It's not an easy movement, but it is the one to which we are called. The missiologist Leslie Newbigin said this about Easter and about the resurrection. He said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Well, wait a second, shouldn't that, shouldn't that make us an optimist? Why? It's, it's a stumbling block. It's, it's foolishness, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It doesn't make us optimistic about anything. Nor does it make us pessimistic. It makes us believers in something else altogether. The resurrection calls us to a third way. The resurrection calls us to the hard work of walking down a long haul and living not with our certainties, but with our doubts. And finding joy, not from our certainties, but from walking with others who doubt with us, who wrestle and struggle and aren't always sure and wonder if it really is possible to be transformed. 
So this morning, some questions for us to think about. How do you live in the tension between the world as it is and the world that the resurrection is ushering in? There's a tension between those two worlds. You can't, you can't dance between them forever. We try as Christians, especially Western Christians, to live in the world, oh, but not of the world. And we do this silly dance, just like I'm doing right now, you know, this kind of Texas two-step that, that, that says, oh, I, in the world, I'm, uh, I just, I, you got to do what you got to do. But, you know, when I show up with my brothers and sisters, well, I'm a disciple. Great adventure in missing the point. How do we live in the tension between the world as it is and the world the resurrection is ushering in? How do you keep your certainties from eliminating your doubts? Jesus, over and over again in the post-resurrection narratives, meets the doubt head-on and embraces their doubts. We live in a world that demands from our faith certainties. And we can't deliver. Are we certain about so Well, we claim we are. But I have counseled people on their deathbed. I have walked with people as they've wrestled with marriages falling apart and lives in ruin. And they have had questions about everything they thought they were certain about. All of us, all of us, all of us live in doubt. And Jesus says, yeah, come be an apostle. Come proclaim the good news. All of us are disappointed with the institutions that have been formed around us to do the good work of the Gospel. I mean, that's nothing new. St. Augustine in the 5th century said, church is my mother, the church is a whore. Go figure. We're always going to live in doubt and disappointment about how things turn out. How do we keep our certainties from eliminating our doubts? How do you keep your sense of humor in a sea of disbelief? The, the most humorless people I know are the people who believe fervently. And I think they miss something. Because there's all kinds of humor in this story with Jesus. Hey, Anybody eating that piece of fish? And he picks it up and starts eating it. And everybody goes, ah! It's not what a ghost is supposed to do. The story's off the rails. How do the Scriptures open your heart and mind to joy? Stuff for us to think about. But one more thing. Because neither... Optimism nor pessimism matters. Just living as if Jesus has already risen matters. The resurrection isn't a proof, it's a call. It isn't scientifically verifiable, it's ethics. And so, again, quoting from Leslie Newbigin, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive 
is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is like the fallout of a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal, but life-giving. Brothers and sisters, does the life-giving fallout of the Gospel irradiate our lives? Does it transform us and reframe everything we believe so that we can hang in there with our doubts and not cling to our false certainties, but live as if the resurrection really happened. Anybody eating that piece of fish? What do you think?